Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning that we are here and we are delighted that uh, we can be a part of this weekend to receive evangelism training and not to just um, come to Christ, but once we come to him, then we can go for him. And so we just ask your spirit to be with each one today, and we pray that this will be a weekend that will change our lives, that we will not be the same people when we leave as when we came, but that we will love you more deeply and indeed deeply enough to go out and share you with others, to go. That is our desire this weekend, Lord, and we ask your blessing now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll just begin. My name is Wes Peppers, and I am very happily representing Amazing Facts this weekend, AFCO, the School College of Evangelism, and uh, just delighted to be here, so thank you. Hi, my name is Siku, and I work with the Center for Adventist Ministry to Public University Students. That's an acronym, CAMPUS. And we work with Adventist students who are going to non-Adventist schools, so to give them resources, training, support while they're on their campuses to be missionaries for Jesus. My name is Mary Burnt, and I uh, have Veggies, a health food store and vegan restaurant that originated in Rapid City, South Dakota, and is now located in Ardmore, Oklahoma. My name is Eugene Pruitt, and I work for Washita Hills College for a few more months. I represent particularly the call porter work in North America, but this fall I'm going to be working with Mr. Wes Peppers. I'll be under him, helping establish international AFCO programs around the world. My name is Taj Pakleb, and our ministry, our ministry is called Revelation of Hope Ministries, and we currently work for Central California Conference as the Conference Evangelist. I'm Gary Gibbs. I work with Hope Channel. We're based out of uh, Maryland at the General Conference. All right. Well, we have a number of questions that we're going to begin with. So we have some questions, I think, that are really tailored towards each speaker. Um, not that anyone, anyone can answer freely, of course, but uh, we'll just begin with the first one here. How would you suggest someone who is excited to get their church active and going when they are faced with people who prefer the status quo. So basically, in other words, how do you get church members involved? How do you get them excited? How do you get them passionate about Jesus enough to have them go out and share him with others? Gary? Well, that's a, that's a common problem I think you'd find in most churches. How many of you face that problem in your church? Now, there's the majority of the hands right there. And it can be frustrating if you say, well, before I can do anything, I've got to get the church alive, got to get them moving. Well, you know, that, that's going to take forever. That would be like trying to warm this place up in the next 10 minutes. It, it just isn't going to happen. And so what you need to do is you need to get involved yourself. Start ministering yourself and find the people in the church who are interested and get them going. I mean, look at how Jesus changed the world. You know, he started with just a handful of others that he discipled. And then together they began ministry and then that was uh, created a ripple effect out. And now we have, you know, even time split up by Jesus' life and death. So that's, that's where it begins, and I, I'd say that what you need to do is try to get your pastor on board. How many of you would say that's a difficult thing to do? Let me see your hands. 
Okay. Go ahead, proudly raise them, go ahead. Yeah, um, that's a whole nother topic, but uh, if you can get your pastor on board, that's very advantageous to you. If not, try to get the next you know, major leader in your church on board. And if you can't do that, then just do ministry. Just start where you are, start doing something, and then tell your story when other people see you doing something and being blessed by it, then they'll get excited and they'll want to be a part of it. And that's, that's pretty critical. Now, if you're, if you're going to map this out as how to do it, you know, first you'd go try to get pastors and leaders on board. If you can't get them on board, start Bible study ministry outreach with the interested people and then try to get a testimony time in the church service or Sabbath school where you're taking somebody. It might be the most unlikely candidate in your church to do witnessing. But that person's life is just majorly impacted by it. Get them up and start telling the stories about what witnessing is doing for them. And then that will catch fire. I find that works the best. Okay, so when they see you on fire and they see a passion in you, they're going to want to know what's going on, right? And we pray that the Holy Spirit, as the wind will blow, and that fire will spread, right? And uh, so that's our prayer. Yes, ma'am. Another very important critical component of this is prayer. You know, our church needs a revival. We're living in the Laodicean era. That's all there is to it. We can only expect what we see. But we're told that it's an answer to prayer that we will see revival. And so what we're doing at my local church, I actually asked my my pastor to be my prayer partner and he and I have been praying every day, and then we got our Bible worker to do a revival for our church, and so we put much prayer behind that, and we are seeing incredible answers to our prayers. And our revival, I would say about a third of our church has come on a regular basis to this revival, and they're getting fired up, and I just encourage everybody to, to find somebody to pray with. And if you can make it your pastor, so much the better because you, it, it's very helpful if he gets engaged and wants to see revival. We have a new general conference president who's all about revival, and I believe we're going to see it. And, but I believe we do need to pray. If you want to have a chance to study something interesting, look up the history of the Tract and Missionary Society in the Adventist Church. It started out with just a few lay people, in fact, ladies in a church in Massachusetts, and they met together to pray and to do witnessing, and it was a a zero or low-budget project. So it didn't have to go through a church board because there was no appropriation of funds needed. That little project grew until nearly 40% of Adventists in North America were sharing tracts. It was a major revival in in the time of our grandparents, and that's how to get started today. I remember a story about a a young Welsh boy uh, that was just a young man, about 10 years old, and he saw the condition of the church, and he said, something has to be done. And so he started to kneel and pray. Every day after school, he'd go there and he'd pray in the church, and people began to wonder, what is this young man doing? And they said, oh, he's just a young boy. Nothing will ever happen. But then one member of the church went and knelt beside that young boy. They were inspired by his passion, his desire to have Jesus transform his church. And uh, so that person began to pray with him. 
And then another person came, and another person, before they knew it, they had five, ten people. And then after about a week, the entire church were on their, was on their knees praying that God would revive them. And that little church, someone came to visit from another town, and they went back to their church and started praying. And after a series of just a, little to- just a few weeks, a few months, the, all the churches in the entire country were on fire for Jesus. There was a great revival, all because of one little boy. So you may say to yourself, well, who am I? You know, I, I'm not the pastor. I'm not the Sabbath school superintendent. I don't do any of those things. But God can use you to do something big. Amen? And uh, he wants to do that. But you start with prayer, and you do these other things, and God will indeed do something. He's waiting. And I'm thankful for what Mary said. I believe we have a general conference president that is truly committed to seeing revival in the church and the God's Spirit being poured out and the message carried to the world. Amen? Amen. All right, our next question is, what are some techniques for witnessing to colleagues in a professional setting where frequent contact is inevitable, and how do I do this even if they become offended, if they're offended at what you're doing? Anybody want to take a challenge at that? Take a stab. I'll, I'll start. Okay. Um, this is, I just thought of a testimony that a friend of mine shared. He works uh, with a cell phone company in Detroit, and he's just on fire for Jesus, and he had that same question. How, how am I going to be able to share with people when, if I tell them um, outright, you know, do you believe in Jesus? They'll be like, ah! And so he, he thought of a way that he could do it in a non-confrontational way. Um, so this is from his example, okay, not from my wisdom. Um, he took glow tracts, and every day at the end of work, when no, when everybody else left, he would stay working late, and then he would take. He had the whole like all this, all the glow tracks that you could have, and he would take the glow tracks and put them on everyone's desk before he went home, like when nobody was there. And then in the mornings, people would get there and they would find these glow tracks on their desk, and they didn't know where they were coming from. The mysterious glow track angel, and um, he said after. He did this, he would put one every week, a new glow track every week, give them time to digest the message. And then after about three months, he got caught putting, a, putting glow tracks on his workmates' desks. And so word went around that he was the mysterious glow track angel. And then one of his coworkers approached him actually and said, ah, oh, you're the one who's been putting this stuff on my desk. I have some questions about this. And they started Bible study. Um, so you never know. I, I, I really think glow tracks are awesome. Like whether in work setting, in campus ministry, in I don't know whatever setting you're in, it's just a very non-confrontational way to get the message out. And you never know who's reading it. And when they read it, once they know you're the one who's putting it out there for them, they're going to approach you for some answers. Amen. Jesus is our prime example of what it means to witness. And when you look at the life of Christ. He, he was able to reach all classes of society. Men and women, you know, he, was, he had the wisdom to be able to reach different people. And uh, the question is how? How was he so successful in, in, in getting the message through? The answer is found in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. If you want to open your Bibles, it's a messianic prophecy concerning the life of Christ. And uh, in this passage, it talks about Jesus and it tells us three things that make a successful message. Three, three different components, and many people have one or two of the components, but if we have all three, we, we can be even more successful 
in reaching people, whether it's business type people, blue collar, white collar, no collar, whatever. And so this is, the, this is what it says. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, it says, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And so in that, there's three things. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. That's what to say. That's the content of your message. That I should know how. That's, that's, the, that's the method of uh, how you're going to say what to say. That I should know how to speak a word in season. That's the timing. When to say. What to say and how to say. So those three things. How to say it. When to say it. And make sure we're saying the right thing. Those three things together. Because many times we're saying the right thing, but we're saying it in the wrong way or the wrong time. Or sometimes we say something the right way in the right time, but we're saying we're giving the wrong message. And so these three things together is what makes a successful uh, or a, a good message. And the question is, how can we have this experience that Christ had? The promise of knowing what to say, how to say it, and when to say it is found is, is only for those who meet the condition in the rest of the verse. It says, He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. So the principle is we have to listen before we speak. And, you know, most importantly, we have to listen to God morning by morning as Jesus did. As he spent time with his father, he, from the father, received the wisdom to know exactly what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. But not just listening to God one-on-one, -on -one, but we also have to listen to the people to find out where their, what their needs are, where they're coming from, what their struggles are. Because our message is determined by our audience. And if we don't know our audience... We don't know what our message is. And so this is talking about Christ. Um, and then verse 5 is important as well. It says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. In other words, he was obedient in what, God had re what, what the Father had revealed to him. And then verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In other words, even if we know exactly what to say, how to say it, and when to say it, we do all that right, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to receive the message anyway. Just as, you know, people rejected Christ, spit in His face. But despite how people responded, Christ, Christ responded to that with love and compassion and pity. And so we also have to keep that in mind. When we're witnessing, not everyone's going to listen, but we, we need to ask the Lord that He would help us to respond the way that He would respond. And as we do that, our actions, our response is going to be even louder than our, than our words, even if we said this, the, the right thing, the right way, and the right time. And so as we meditate upon this, and we pray that God will give this experience, this applies in every aspect of, 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 of ministry, whether it's in a business setting, social setting, school setting, it doesn't matter. This works because it's the, it's the method of Christ. That's excellent, Taj. And I, I might just add to that, uh, there are many different ways to witness. Uh, I'm not the type of person that will put a track on everybody's desk and sneak around and do that. I think it's great that people do that. Uh, but I would tend to be, my, my method would tend to be to pray and say, Lord, who is probably the most receptive person here in the office? Might be one, might be two people. It's kind of like that story. You probably remember, Eugene, the guy, uh, who was it? Um, was it Bates that went into Battle Creek and looked for the most honest man, asked who's the most honest man in town, and it happened to be the uh, postmaster, wasn't it? 
And that became the first convert, Adventism. So I pray, Lord, who around here is the most receptive? Show me that person. And then I like to develop it by a relationship. I'm the type of person, I'm a convert to Adventism, and I wasn't a Christian before I became an Adventist. And, um, you know, the, the Christian Bible bangers that came up and started witnessing in my face and all, they turned me off. They didn't turn me on. And, you know, I think God uses those people. I think that's a good way to do it, and I've done a fair amount of that myself. But my methodology is more pray, find the person, and then develop the relationships. I would start with, hey, how about grabbing lunch together? And start out with lunch, start out with natural conversations, see how they develop and pray that they develop into spiritual conversations, find the opening, doing what Taj is saying, praying and listening to God's Spirit speaking to you, and then taking that conversation to where big questions are asked. And it can happen in one conversation. You know, and they might say, I don't understand what's going on in the Middle East. It's crazy right now. And the economy and my family's out of work and th this and that. And then you say, well, you know, I thought about those things too. And I came across a series of Bible studies on Bible prophecy that explains why all this is happening. And I'm, I'm planning to look into it myself and study this. It'd be fun if the two of us got together and do it. You have an interest in doing that? And turn the big questions into Bible studies. That tends to be a method that I like. It works really well for me. It tends to follow, flow naturally, and yet there are many different ways to witness. Two thoughts I'm thinking. This is not a microphone, is it? Two thoughts I'm thinking. <laughs> One of them is that the key is to do something. Amen. If you wait until you're exactly sure of what to do, I'm thinking in a little church plant in Arkadelphia that we've tried seven or eight different, very different methods to get the message to the people. Not one of those methods has brought in a large number of people, but every one of them has brought in somebody. Mm. The key is to try. Amen. And the second thought I have is from Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 and verse 13. But I'll give you a chance to turn there. Hebrews 5 verse 13. It says, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to those that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The passage is about the content. If you're going to ask me, what is the most appropriate way to serve a well-done steak to a baby, I would be perplexed to tell you the proper way to do it. It's not for them. And when you're sharing with men in that business community, Ellen Wright describes in Culpeter Ministry how many, many businessmen are touched by the simple relation of the love of Jesus and what he does for a heart. And very few people are touched by arguments. Mm, very few. The content of milk for babes is just right for the business office. Well, I just want to add, too, that Sister White tells us that we're to go about and mingle with people as one who desires their good. And I feel very blessed to be in a situation where people come to us who are sick, who are hurting, because we can always reach out to them and say, 
you know, we, sure, we let them buy the things that they may need, but then we always say, can I pray with you before you leave? And I've never had anybody in that situation say, no, don't pray for me. We've always been able to pray with people. And I think that a lot of times as a church, we don't understand how to go out there and mingle with people who aren't one of us. We don't, we're not good at that as a church. And we need to learn to go out there. I'm not talking about going to movies with people or going to places where we shouldn't be, but there are a lot of things that people do where we could go and mingle with them. And if they see our life, they see our example, a lot of times they're gonna wanna know what's different about us. And so we need to find those opportunities to get out and, and mingle with people who don't know what we know. You know, there's a statement, and I, I don't know, Gary, if you, you probably know it. I slipped my mind. It's in your book. And um, she says, Christ, <laughs> when some witnessing, Christ's method alone will bring true success in reaching the people. Mary kind of hit that. But she says that Jesus would uh, mingle with people. And as you mingle with people they, and you get to know them, you build that relationship, like Gary mentioned, they begin to trust you. And then as they trust you, they're going to begin telling you, things, if they see that you're different than everyone else, that you really are genuinely interested in them, they're going to begin to trust you and they're, they're going to begin telling you things that they may not tell other people about their life, their problems. Then she says that Jesus would, after he mingled with them, he would sympathize with them. Mm -hmm. And so then you can begin sympathizing with them saying, you know what, I'm really sorry about that. You know, I, I, I and then as you just sympathize with them, then she says, sympathize, what's the third one? Um, minister to their needs. Um, once you sympathize with them, then you have the opportunity to help do something about it. You offer them prayer, as Mary said. If they have a, a specific problem, a physical problem, a physical need or something, you can help them with that. And then, she says, as that happened, it would win the person's confidence. And once you win that confidence, then it's the time to share the Word of God. Um, you know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I bought a hundred uh, uh, National Sunday Law books and I went out and passed them out. And that's great to go out and pass books out. But when you're dealing with one-on-one -on -one people, they need to know you care. And what I found is that, and I'm sure the panel would agree, is that no matter what background a person is from, no matter what socioeconomic status they are, no matter what gender, no matter what race, no matter what culture, all people have one thing in common on this earth, and that is their heart. Everybody wants to know that somebody cares about them. Everybody wants to know that their life has a purpose. It doesn't matter where they're from. And if you show that genuine kindness, it doesn't matter if it's a Muslim, it doesn't matter if it's a Hindu, it doesn't matter who it is. You may have some cultural barriers to work around, but ultimately if you reach that heart, they're going to be open to just about anything you have to say and you're gonna be able to, to move them in the direction that the Lord wants them. And so, you, you know, you, you gotta build the relationship first um, when you're dealing with people one-on-one, -on -one. and there's many ways to do that. All right, our next question is, how can I get through to my friend who doesn't believe in God and is a staunch atheist? What do I do? <laughs> Are you pushing it or pulling it towards you? <laughs> you holding it. it. Okay. <laughs> Anybody you like to? Uh, okay. okay, Eugene. No, go, you had some. Okay. You first, Eugene. 
so call putters meet lots of atheists. And I don't have experience that the panel might have on how to get the work half done or all done, but I give you an idea of how to get started. Uh, when we meet atheists and they tell us, I might ask them, do you read novels? You know, most people who are thinkers tend to read, and a lot of atheists are intellectuals and they like to read. And they'll say, yes, typically, or something like that. And I'll say, do you believe what you find in the novel? And they'll say, of course not. And I'll say, you might not believe this either, but you'll find it just as interesting as a novel. And I'll just hand them a book. <laughs> and um, you'd be surprised how well an atheist will take, how he'll appreciate it when you respect his atheism, where, where it doesn't feel to him like, like you think that he's scum because he doesn't believe. Just to relate to him in a respectful way is a winner. This, this is going back to what Wes was saying earlier about um, every, people's hearts. Because I think um, somehow, especially for born and bred, and I'm saying this as you know, a born and bred Adventist, uh, you kind of have this picture of atheists as these aliens who have no feelings. And then when you see them, you're just like, oh, it's an alien. But really, they're just normal people. And that's what shocked me um, when I started, when I went to college and I met all these atheists in my class. And then I met lesbians. And then I met people whose moms were lesbians. And I was like, they're normal people. Like, they eat food. <laughs> they, like, digest it just like I do. And this was, cra this was a crazy realization for me. Um, but it helped me to realize that the same heart needs that I have, like the need to belong, the need to be accepted, the need to feel like you're loved just for who you are, not because of your intelligence or lack thereof, etc. Those kind of needs, everybody has them, including the atheist friend that I have. Like they're just normal people. And realizing that also helped me to realize how... Uh, how effective the gospel actually is. Mm -hmm. That the gospel isn't just a set of beliefs that we have and things we had to memorize in order to graduate from baptismal class, but this stuff actually impacts my day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. It impacts the way that I view myself. It impacts the way that I view the world. And those are the kind of things that I can share with them, not a set of beliefs that you read on paper, but the stuff that answers the hard questions that I have. And I think when we start relating to people as people, then we can actually reach out to people, the people that Jesus came to save. In 1993, we opened our first health food store, and I was doing um, a health and nutrition seminar, and there were four young ladies who had come from the local high school, and they were punk rock young ladies, and they were just really loving this seminar. And then one day, and I fell, I fell in love with them. They fell in love with me, and one day they brought their boyfriends in. And I found out that one of them had been going back to her boyfriend and telling him about all the things she was learning in the Southland Nutrition Seminar, and then she would tell him about how, you know, this was coming from the Bible because, I, you know, it sneak the Bible in there too. And he would say, now listen, you can listen to her when she talks about the health and everything, that's really good. That is right on. But when she starts talking about God, just, you know, shut it out. Don't listen to that. And through the course of many events, I became friends with this young man who at the time I think would have called himself an atheist. And it took years. It took years of, of, of you know, really befriending him. Like I said, mingling. 
I would get calls from this young man after he got to know me in the middle of the night with health issues. Then he started inviting me to go rock climbing with them and hiking, and he sometimes would even sarcastically call me the skirt hiker. Oh, the skirt hiker's here, because I would frequently just go in my jean skirt to hike. But it, and it took years, but you all know David Ashrick, and you see through much patience and perseverance and prayer, the much, much prayer, and, and I had to pray for myself in that situation because I didn't like that young man at first because he was, you know, he had an attitude. And I prayed and asked God to forgive me. <laughs> uh, that was a past tense verb that I used there. This is all fair, you see, because he tells stories about me all the time and I never get to answer them back. But anyway, I, through much prayer, I think, again, I hate to sound like a broken record player, but it's God who can change the heart. I have news for you. There's not one of us in this room who can change anybody's heart, but the Lord can, and prayer is powerful. Standard Adventist study on Daniel 2 has turned many atheists into theists. Mm. It's just an amazing thing to realize the Bible could predict the future. Amen. I'll just add to that, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 is very interesting in this regard, I believe, because it's talking about belief and how you come to belief. And uh, 2 Peter 1.16 is something I think atheists could relate to, because atheists look at Christians as idiots that, that were mindless followers of, of a religion that somehow meeting some deep felt insecurity and need that we have in our own hearts and we're willing to believe any deception or fable to satisfy this inner need. So they're always psychoanalyzing us. And if you ever get on the atheist website, you'll, you'll see how they talk about Christians. They're very demeaning of Christians and they think, they think we don't even think. I was on the airplane recently flying to uh, England and I happened to sit beside a lady uh, who is an atheist, and she's actually quite a well-known woman. She writes for the New York Times, and she's uh, published a book that's done very well. She's working on her second book, and she has a TV program in England. So we were doing introductions and found out we had things in, in common, both on TV, both writing, and this and that. And then we kind of parted ways because she's an atheist, she's a scientist, uh, evolutionary biologist, in fact, and an atheist, and I'm a Christian who believes in creation. So we had quite a lengthy discussion on that. And I thought, Lord, what do I say to this lady? I mean, this lady is well-schooled in her belief system. She told me her father is a, a renowned scientist, lives in Baltimore, and he is a atheist as well, writes many scientific papers. She says, I come from a long line of atheists. What am I going to tell this lady that she hasn't heard before? And it made me think of the uh, statement in Desire of Ages. I had a moment here I could use my hand warmer to find the uh, thing, but the statement. But Ellen White says that, you know, what the world is dying for is for our own testimony. And they, that they can't controvert that. They can't argue with you about what you have experienced. And that's what came to my mind. I shared with her two things, and that's what I'll share with you here out of 2 Peter 1, verse 16. 
For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we, have, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. That's what I call subjective evidence. That's the evidence where you have heard God's voice speak to you. And you've had God do things in your life that you can't explain any other, by any other naturalistic means. That's the testimony Ellen White's talking about, where God has really touched your heart, done something for you. And it might be, you know, super miraculous. It might just be him changing your heart. It might just be saying, you know, I don't know. I've not seen God. But, man, if you knew me before I became a Christian... I was this, boom, boom, boom. I didn't have peace. I was ugly. I was mean. I was angry. And I tried to change, but nothing could change me until I encountered God. And a change happened overnight. And you might say, well, he just wanted to be changed and all that. But, you know, the testimony of a changed life. That's the subjective evidence. I shared with this lady uh, a story of a friend of mine. I said, Here, here's a guy who was a very well-known author public speaker. He lived his whole life. There was nothing unusual about his life to say this guy's psychotic. Very normal guy, very professional, advanced guy. When he was a young man, he was sleeping in a tent. And in the night, an intruder came into the tent and started strangling him. And he started wrestling with the intruder when he realized there was nothing physical there. But the hands around his neck were extremely real. They were choking life out of him. And he wrestled and wrestled. And he didn't know what to do, how to get free of this force. And then he cried out, Jesus Christ. And immediately it disappeared. I said, now he, here you have a normal person. Their whole life is normal. They're professional people. There's nothing psychotic about them at all. Did they dream this up? Or was this real? If you ask this man, it was extremely real. So subjective evidence there. Then you have the objective evidence. And I find this goes along with what Eugene was just saying. The next verse, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. So now you have the objective evidence. And I told this lady, I said, you know, the Bible makes some audacious claims. It predicts things are going to happen in a certain way. And those are objective things that you can test the reliability of that book by. As a scientist, you take specific theses and then you test it. You perform certain tests to see if that idea is true or not. You can do the same thing with the Bible. The Bible claims to be divinely inspired. There's this divine creature out there we call God who knows everything and this is his word. Well, you can take the claims of that book, and if you investigate it, you can see whether the book's claims come true or not. And then I turned her to the prophecy, uh, help me out, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, about uh, how Cyrus would free the Jewish people, 45, 44 and 45, is it? 
Okay, 45, 1 and 3, and actually chapter 44 as well, if I recall correctly, where it talks about uh, named Cyrus 150 years before he's born. Tells exactly how he's going to cause Babylon to fall by drying up the Euphrates. And I said, you know, this was predicted 150 years before it ever happened. And it happened exactly that way. What are the chances, the mathematical chances of that happening? And I said, there are hundreds of objective pieces of evidence that you could test in the Bible. And so with an atheist, they like objective evidence. A friend of mine said this to an atheist, and the guy ended up being baptized. He was a, uh, he was a lawyer. And he said, uh, you know, you test theses by objective evidence. Well, I'd like to test this book with you to see whether what this book claims is true. And he took him through a series of Bible studies, prophetic Bible studies, testing each of these prophecies. At the end, the guy gave his heart to the Lord. I also like what Ty Gibson says. You know, Ty Gibson told the other day at GYC how he was at, uh, on an airplane. The guy said he was an atheist. And, the, and Ty said, well, I'm an atheist too. And he said, well, how that, can that be? You just told me you're a minister. He said, well, tell me, what, what God is it that you don't believe in? Describe him for me. And the guy described this autocratic, hateful, mean God that's caused all the problems on the earth. And Ty said, I'm an atheist too. I don't believe in that God either. And that opened the door for him to tell about the God he does believe in. I, I just want to add, I think we've pretty well answered the question, but I just want to add that I appreciate what especially all the speakers said, but Eugene and, and Gary also about the prophecy because Eight years ago, I was that atheist, and I wanted zero to do with God. My life was, was out of control. Uh, my family uh, was basically decimated. My, my parents divorced when I was 17. I, my mother tried to commit suicide, and, <clears throat> and my whole life was in shambles. And I said, I said, I don't believe there is a God, but if there was a God, I don't want anything to do with him because he's to blame for allowing all this to happen. And through a series of events, it led me to the point where I almost committed suicide. And right before that happened, God led me to the Bible. In my mind, I was going to disprove the Bible. Uh, but as I tried to disprove it, I couldn't do that. Um, and, I, and I started studying prophecies. And actually, Daniel 2 was one of the first prophecies. And I saw that Daniel predicted world events hundreds and at times, and, and John as well, thousands of years in advance um, of when they happened. And I, and I checked the dates and it was true. And there was really no other explanation except there had to be a mastermind behind the Bible. And so then I started reading the Gospels. So I, I had confidence that the Bible could be trusted. And then I started reading the Gospels and that's where I met Jesus and radically changed my life. And the rest is history. But um, it, what I believe is that that in Revelation chapter 11, there is um, a, an event described that is uh, many events, but one is particularly the, the, the French um, Revolution in the late 1700s. And that, that event basically was a result of the Roman church misrepresenting God's character on earth. You read about that in Great Controversy. And she says it in multiple places in multiple ways. And the French Revolution basically was the springboard for modern atheism as we know it. And what was exciting was that all the reasons you find, many of them at least, of why the people were rejecting God, and which led to modern atheism, 
just a few years later, God raised the Advent movement and it answered all those questions about God. And so in reality, the devil was trying to raise up this idea of atheism in the late 1700s to counter, to take people's minds away of the prophecies that were beginning to, to be fulfilled. And then God raised up a movement, which you're a part of, praise the Lord, amen, that would answer it. So for me, in First Peter, I, have, I actually have a series on audio verse about atheism, and, and, and I'm sure other speakers do as well. But this is a subject I'm very passionate about because that's where I came from. But in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, you probably know this text. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone. To who? To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That includes the atheist, does it not? And so what I found is that there are many ways you can break through to them. Now, we don't have time to go through them all, but I'm happy to talk to you about them. But I believe that one of the strongest is just your life's testimony. The way that you live, the way that you live your life, as you live your life for Christ, as you seek to do others good and you stand out from other people, not to the glory of yourself, of course, but people will notice that. Even if they are an atheist, they will say, that's a, that's a person that, that is not like others. And when they know you're a Christian, it's going to be a testimony. Amen. And to, to the other thing is it says, be ready to give an answer. So educate yourself. Don't assume that atheists are the scum of the earth. Because they're not. They have great things to contribute to society. They, uh, many times they have good things to say and do. And so you have to show mutual respect. You know, there's nothing more annoying than a know-it-all Christian. Um, somebody that says, well, you may have came from a monkey, but I sure didn't, right? And if you want to believe that, God's got a place for you, and it's, not, and it's pretty hot, right? It's warmer than L.A. in the summertime. And, and so to have that kind of an attitude is really the wrong attitude, really the wrong attitude. But to share what God has done for you is one of the most powerful things. And uh, we could say more, but I think we've answered that enough. All right, um, our next question is, says, There is a youth in my church who is very bitter towards Christianity and is only there because he's forced to be by his parents. When he comes, he plays video games on his netbook or, or iTouch all the time and distracts others. What's the best thing we can do to win his soul and prevent, him, prevent others from following his example? Again, I would go back to the mingling. There's something that youth likes to do. My daughter and I are blessed to have horses. We use them to take youth or anybody else and to take them out horseback riding and, and just to show them a really wonderful time and get close to them and get to know them. A lot of youth like to skateboard. They, or, you know, you're out here by the ocean, you have the mountains. There's so much that you could do to get close to a young person like that. And I would do it. I would do it in such a way that they didn't feel like you had an agenda about bringing them into the church. We always try to do it so that they know that our agenda is that we just want to get to know you better. And, and we love you and we want to hang out. And I, I just think, especially with youth, it's really important that they sense that we have that love for them regardless of their attitudes towards the church. We're talking now about the question of what to do 
for a young man who's being forced to sit in church, but he's not being forced to pay attention. Um, there are a few things I can think of. One, it would be to sit beside the young man. There's something about sitting beside someone that, well, you know, as soon as you sit beside him, he's not going to have a lot of other people sitting beside him. And so you're going to help limit his nefarious influence for the moment. That's a winner. Another thought is, not at church, but at some point, you might need to have a talk with his parents. Uh, I had an experience just about four years ago with a young man who was brought to Washington Hills College. His name, we're being recorded. I'm not going to tell you his name. Uh, he was brought there by his dad from Florida, and his dad brought him in the cafeteria. This is the first time I'd ever met them. And his dad said to me, I want you to take his iPod from him. He listens to terrible music. This is in front of the young man, his son. I felt so bad for the son. Would you feel bad for the son to have your dad speak like that to a stranger right in front of you? And I told the dad, I said, you're welcome to talk to him if you want, but we don't have a rule here against the college students having iPods. Um, he's welcome to have it, and we'll talk about proper music later. And the dad didn't like it, but that was the end of that, and then the dad left. And um, the next day, I took that young man for a walk. And I told him, you know, our school's rules are just way too strict if you don't choose them for yourself. If you choose them for yourself, then the issues about music and diet and dress are just small little things for the benefit you're looking for of a Christian education. But if you don't choose, them for your, if you don't choose it for yourself, these will be a constant irritation. Your entire life here will just be miserable day after day after day. So I told the young man, I said, listen, give yourself a week, look it over, see what you think about this program. If you decide that it's worth it to have the benefit, even if it costs this, then good. Stay here of your own choice. But if you decide that you would rather not, I'll make sure that there's nothing your dad can do to make you stay here. And you know, a week later he decided he wanted to stay. And just by having the ball put in his own court, what would have been an irritation became something he could deal with and he could benefit. He emailed me last week, and now he's trying to choose what type of ministry to do with his life. And um, there's something to be said about giving young people some respect and some space. I agree with everything that's been said, and I just would like to add to that, you never know what a young person's going through. That, that boy who's distracted at church, you never know what his home life is like. You don't know what might have happened outside of his home life. We live in a very wicked world today, and there's all sorts of perversion and abuse going on at a huge percentage rate. And, you know, people who are acting out, you don't know what they're acting out from. And there could be abuse there, physical, verbal, sexual and it doesn't even have to happen within the immediate family unit. It could have happened outside of it. So you, you don't know what's going on or why somebody's doing something. So the last thing you want to be is judgmental and look at somebody and say, here's a rebellious kid, because you'll just run them off. What Mary said is, you know, you need to embrace them, become a friend with them. Uh, like Eugene, trust them, uh, give them responsibility, 
and, and win their heart. That's what it's all about. And they'll come along. They, they want to be trusted. They want to be respected. And music is a big thing, but it's also a small thing. You know, just don't, don't let those things get in the way of winning the heart and loving the person. And, and usually young people, if trusted, will rise to your expectations. Okay, we have about 20 minutes left, and we still have um, quite a number of questions here. So maybe we can, uh, the questions, we can have one or two responses from, from a, one of the panel, and maybe we can direct some of these also. The next one says, if I'm asked to write a paper at my university or college that I do not agree with, such as evolution or something along that nature, what should I do if I know that painting a negative picture will cost me a good grade? And uh, we have someone here that deals specifically with campus ministry, so I think it would be appropriate to let her deal with that. Thank you, Wes. You're welcome. Um, write the paper and be honest. Good answer. <laughs> when, um, just real briefly to add to that, um, when I, was, when I was in college, um, you know, I was taking all kinds of evolutionary courses, and um, I had to have a problem with it when I was an atheist. When I became a Christian, I accepted the Lord. It was a real challenge for me, obviously, to write that the earth was billions of years old, etc., and, but at the same time, my grade is at stake. So I didn't want to compromise, but at the same time, I knew I needed the grade. So the way I would often respond was, this is the answer that is required, or this is the answer that is need, needs to be given, um, and then I might, or this is the answer that I, I believe will, that the professor is looking for. I, I worded it in some way, and then I would give the answer, but I would always make sure at the bottom I would say, this is not my personal belief. I believe in something very different. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that you, you have to do it in such a way that you're not expressing that that's your belief, but that's the thing that's required as well. I mean, you know, sometimes we have to do things that, um, that aren't, you know, the best, how do I say, that aren't desirable, but at the same time, we can do certain things. Certain things we just cannot do. Does that make sense? Certain things you can do in such a tactful way that you're giving them what they want, but you're not expressing that that's what you believe and that um, you're making that known as well. So that's, that's one way that I've done it. Um, and maybe somebody else wants to add something very briefly. Yes. You, you got me thinking. Um, I think what, in academic circles, what's interesting is a lot of times, um, and we'll talk about this a bit in the seminar tomorrow, is they're not necessarily even looking for what you think, but they want to know that you have thought about what they think right. and that you can tell them what they want you to think you think, that kind of thing. Um, and a smart student knows how to regurgitate what they have been told to think, even if they don't think. I, that's my analysis of Western education um, in a kind way. <laughs> okay, anyway, I think um, if you're asked to write a paper 
on something that you don't necessarily believe in. It's not just evolution that you encounter in classroom situations, although that's a target. You take a literature class and you're basically asked to use higher criticism in the way that you analyze text, which is not necessarily the best way to analyze text, period. Um, but you're asked to use these methods and that kind of thing. What you want to show is that you actually understand and you comprehend the methods and the information that is being taught to you, which is understandable, and you do understand it. And then you want to be able to reflect that in your responses. Um, but like Wes was saying, you're not, you don't want to champion a cause that you don't believe in, so you're not writing a paper to convince your professor about evolution. Um, on top of that, I think something that maybe a lot of students haven't thought of and I didn't think of until I was done with college was, you know when you write a paper for class, you can actually write another paper that you weren't asked to write. And I didn't, I didn't know that until I graduated. And I was like, man, I missed so many opportunities to share with my professors things that they, they don't know probably. Like we're talking about Daniel too. Like, in my history class, we're talking about Rome and the civilization of Rome. I'm like, the Bible has so much stuff about Rome. I could have shown my professor that, aside from what you want me to regurgitate from what I read in the textbook, but here's extra information for extra credit, and professors love that, for extra credit on my own personal research into the matter of Rome and how, the, how it fell. And you know what? There's actually an ancient document that tells us about how this was all going to happen, even before it happened, with precise accuracy. And then you quote this ancient document, as well as other historical documents that demonstrate the validity of what you're showing. Um, I think we kind of think in a little box sometimes when we go, go into school. It's like, I need to write this paper this way so I can get an A. What if you could get an A plus by not just writing the paper, but going a step beyond that and write the truth? That's what I meant by, you know, write the truth. Like, you could maybe not just get an A or an A plus, but maybe you could also win your professor. Hmm. Amen. You know, Jesus was very wise, wasn't he? Do you agree with that? And uh, there was a group of people that came to him and said, uh, dear teacher, should we pay taxes to Caesar rather than you know, to God? And he, he said, throw me the coin, right? And he said, whose inscription is this? And uh, they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render therefore the things that are God's to God, right? And you can be wise in the way that you answer in such a way that demonstrates the truth, even while at the same time giving them the answer they're looking for and not, not, not um, confronting and insulting and, or calling out the teacher in such a way that will embarrass them, because when that happens, then you're going to re receive the reper repercussions, right? And so you want to do it in a way that's very respectful, that's very professional, but at the same time showing that there is another way to look at it. Does that make sense? And so that's the best way. And if you find yourself in a difficult trap where it just, it just becomes unbearable to do that, there's some great colleges I would recommend such as Wachita Hills, Weimar, um, and many others that you can go to where you can be in an environment. But on the flip side, we can't go to those places to escape those things because they are a reality. And, you know, you have to be acquainted with the other side so that you will know how to answer it. But that doesn't mean you have to um, 
I'll swear, well, how am I looking to say it? That doesn't mean that you have to totally immerse yourself into it because when you're looking for the truth or when you're looking to, to dive into the other argument, you don't have to drink the whole gallon of milk to know it's sour, right? You, you can just take one drink and you know. Yes, certainly. I'm afraid that you could really trick yourself into a compromise that would trouble your spiritual life. If you're assigned to do something evil, you can't get away with it. You can't, for example, read a piece of corrupt fiction because you're required to and because your graduation depends on it, and then in the judgment plead that it was required. No one has authority over your soul other than the Lord God of heaven. And when you as a young person are challenged over what is right and wrong, you can't always escape the lion's den or the fiery furnace by the wisdom that heaven gives you. Sometimes the wisdom heaven gives you puts you right there, and that is just the place to be. We must do right at all times. Amen. And doing it in a way that is a witness, and a witness. Okay, our next question says, how do you witness to someone who holds God accountable for all the bad things that happen to people, such as innocent kids or, you know, if they were abused or something? For example, I know someone that is, if I, if I know something that is going to happen to someone and I don't stop them and they die... It's my fault. And so, but that person ends up blaming God for it. I'm not sure if I, do you understand what that question is saying? Um, would you like to try at that, Eugene or Tosh? So the, the main issue is why does a loving God allow sin and suffering? Is that? Is that? Yeah, I think ultimately. I would probably demonstrate that God does not cause uh, sin and suffering. Um, you know, the story in, that Jesus told about the sower that went to sow good seed in the field and that weeds uh, grew up amongst the wheat. And Jesus said, clearly, an enemy has done this. And so in, we can't blame God for causing it. He doesn't cause it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an enemy, there's an adversary out there that is against God, that is against goodness that is trying to destroy God's creation. And so just to make, first of all, that clear, God does not cause sin and suffering. The fact is he does allow it. And that's really what people are wanting to know. Why does he allow sin and suffering? And um, there's a whole study on, you know, the freedom of choice, how God has, you know, he doesn't always get his way. God's will is not being done on earth. And you know, Satan's will is being done. Our will is being done. We live in a world of cause and effect. And, um, you know, our choices bring about consequences for good or for bad. And uh, God has made it that way. And the reason why is because God, his government is based on love. And love mandates freedom. If there is no freedom, there's no possibility for love. But whenever you give someone freedom, freedom also always produces a risk. And God, you know, in creating the human race as free moral agents with the ability to choose for themselves was taking a huge risk. That was a risk that God 
you know, made, but God saw that the only way that love would be, or happiness would be possible is if there was love, and love could only be possible if there was freedom. And so, you know, God made that choice because He wants us to be free, and He wants us to be happy. And, you know, the fact that things didn't go His way isn't His fault. We, we need to take responsibility for our own actions, our own choices. You know, sin infects everything, just like a, a, a rotten apple in a box full of good apples. What eventually happens? The rot begins to spread. And that's why bad things happen to innocent people, because we live in a world of sin and suffering. And just kind of explaining that, we can also share how God has a solution to all these things. And His solution was that He came and He, he died, uh, not just to save us from sin, but to preserve freedom, uh, to preserve freedom of choice. He would die rather than change His law, rather than let us die. He would come and, and down the cross uh, for us. And so, I mean, there's many different ways to explain it, but I think the, the, the root of the matter is just, you know, free choice, free will. And the purpose of that is because God desires our happiness. He, desire, he desires our love. And so, yes, it was a risk in creating us that way, but in God's heart and mind, love is worth taking that risk. And as we uh, receive that love in our lives, as we, as we make the right decision, to put God's first, we will see that it was worth it at, at, at the same time. The question is a very complex one. Um, at the website BibleDoc.org, there's an article about God and pain that goes into many of the real reasons that pain is allowed and God has allowed it. If you're looking for a deep answer or for a lot of info, it's there. Let me just offer a couple more thoughts. We, I'll use an example. I had a surgery a year and a half ago, and I dreaded the surgery because I dread needles. I don't know if any of you have issues with needles. I, you know how to use needles, don't you? And um, I was dreading it because when I was five or six, I had an IV put into my wrist by a lady who didn't know how to do it. And she had to do it over and over and over again. And when I was one year, when I was a year old, I had the rabies series of shots because I'd been bitten by a rabid animal in my belly. And those two events were sufficient to create a phobia. Do any of you have phobias you have to deal with? And so I have phobia of needles. But I went ahead and, and dealt with that IV because the little bit of pain was worth it for the benefit that would come from the surgery. But suppose now you told me that I had to get an IV every day of my life for the next 40 years to stay alive. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, there, there, there comes a point when, when it wouldn't be worth it. But eternity is a very long time for the universe to enjoy a sinless universe, a very long time. And it's long enough to make worth it any volume of suffering necessary to lead to that end. There's no depth or quantity of suffering that could happen here in this period of earth's history that wouldn't be easily worth it for the benefit that's coming. But what about for the suffering individuals? Here are some things I don't know. 
if someone is going to grow up to be a lost individual, their life isn't even a blessing to them. And if it ends when they're young, it's better for them than if they grew to be older. If someone is going to grow up to go to heaven, and they go to heaven because they die when they're young, that death is no tragedy to them. They still get to go to heaven minus a whole lot of trouble. I don't know enough about young people and children to really say whether their death is a disaster. But for those who don't die, I'm thinking right now of Africa. I can't say that the poverty and suffering in Africa is really, in the eternal picture, been bad for the continent. I think I might find more Africans in heaven per capita than Americans. And I'm not sure that the peace and security we've had here has been really that good for us. So that our perspective on suffering may just be missing so many important pieces of data that we don't know what we're talking about. And if the question is, why does God allow it, we might find out in the end that it was really for the very best, even if we can't see it today. Just a, just a verse as well on this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. I would say after explaining the theology behind why God allows suffering, we, may not, we will not be able to adequately answer specific circumstances that people have. Why did God allow me to suffer in this way? Or why did this specific thing happen? We can't explain it uh, because, you know, our minds are, are too puny and God is, is infinite, we, you know, and He sees what's best. But what we can do after explaining is share that there's good news even through the suffering, through the pain, we have promises that, you know, all things work together for good and that the, the present suffering is preparing us for future glory, uh, which enables us to bear the suffering uh, a lot better. You know, I, I don't know, some of you may know, but in, in 2009, I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, almost perished from that. Um, and make a long story short, God miraculously intervened and saved my life, and today I'm cancer-free. But through that whole process, um, I had to deal with some intense suffering. And Brother Eugene, I, I can sympathize with all the needles. <laughs> um, but, you know, through the process of that, God taught me so many things. He taught me patience. He taught me endurance. And certainly I'm not a master of either of those, but I'm better than I was before, I hope. Um, but God is incredible how through the process of, of suffering, you know, what we don't often sense through our tr pain and trial is that God is right there beside us. And whatever we're experiencing physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, he is suffering even greater than that. Because as he looks down and sees his children suffer, he also suffers. But through the process of, of any trial, we're always tempted to ask the question, God, why, right? Why is this happening to me? 
you know, I, I've tried to do good, I've tried to help other people, etc. Why, why is this happening? And that's just essentially the question that many people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But through that process, I learned not to ask the question why, but to ask the question how. And when I, what I mean by that is, God, how can something positive come out of this? How can something good come from what's happening? And when I began asking that question, God just really opened my eyes. Because as I was in the hospital, as I was, um, you know, going to the doctor's appointments, I saw a whole vast of people that needed to know Jesus. And I began to share with my roommates. I began to share with the nurses. And, and there's two times when people will really will listen to you about something spiritual. And that's when they're sick or when you're sick. And when you're sick... They feel so badly for you that they'll listen to anything you say almost. And so I found that to be greatly to my advantage. And we began sharing with them, and, and I would tell them about the Lord and give them books. And there were people in the hospital that were led to the Lord. I was in a room with a man who told me he had attended the Adventist church regularly about 30 years ago, had never been to church, and now he was dying from liver cancer. And I talked with him, and we prayed together, and he rededicated his life to the Lord right there in the hospital. Said he was going to go to church when he got out. And uh, so many stories I could tell you about that. But what I found is that when we are suffering, God will give us the strength we need to get through that. And that anything we are experiencing is only a portion of what God experiences and, and, and the Bible says that he will be our shield. And so whatever comes our way hits him first, and we only receive the fragments that he allows. Isn't it wonderful to know that the suffering we experience is only the amount that God will allow? There's a beautiful text that really illustrates um, this and, and many other things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. In other words, there's no situation that we go through that Christ can't comfort us in, no matter how challenging it may be. But notice this. It says, so God comforts us, and he does that because he loves us, but that's not the only reason. The second reason, it says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And that's a powerful thing because what happens is, is that when we go through a suffering situation, a, trying, a, a challenging trial, God comforts us because he loves us, but he also comforts us because he wants to prepare us to then help someone else, and also in a trial. And so the thing that I, that I tell people is, do you realize that if you're truly abiding in Christ, to be, to be given the opportunity to suffer on Christ's behalf is really actually a true honor. Because God trusts you, or he trusts in you to lean on him, that as you trust him to lead you through that trial, he's preparing you to then reach somebody else. And so whenever you go through a trial... You know, and I recommend to this person that asks this question is to present some of these things to that individual. When you go through a trial, look at it as an opportunity that God has given you to turn around and help somebody else. And that, I think that's the greatest blessing. And obviously the death of Jesus brought life to the world, right? 
And so Jesus' trial brought life to others. And that's the best thing I can say is, um, you know, through personal experience. Now, I've had the opportunity to share my testimony with hundreds of people. And I was on a plane. Um, I'll just tell this story real quick, and then we, I think we have to close. But I was on a plane to Ukraine this past uh, December, and there was a lady that was supposed to sit beside me, and she ended up swapping seats with this other lady. And I thought, maybe this is a divine appointment. So I began praying, and for three hours, the lady didn't talk to me. She just read a book. And um, finally, she, I was just praying, Lord, if you want me to talk to this lady, provide an opportunity. We had like a nine-hour flight. So after about three hours, she closed the book and looks over and smiles real big and says, hi. And I said, wow. I said, hi, how are you? And uh, we got to talking a little bit, and she was telling me she was on her way home from a business trip to see her son in a Christmas play. Now, when she said that, do you think that was my cue? I said, wow. I said, is that, is that a church school that he goes to? I noticed there's, there's not a lot of public you know, schools that allow Christmas plays. I said, is that a church school? And she said, yes. And so we got to talking, and it turns out that she was on the verge of completely giving up on God. She said, my husband is an atheist. My brother-in-law last year committed suicide, and my husband can't understand why God would allow that to happen. And she said, he has talked to me so much about this. She says, I just, I've become so discouraged, I'm ready to quit and give up on God. She said, in fact, this was my last straw. Basically, she's, she's done. And so just at the right time, God provided an opportunity for me to share with her my testimony of how I was sick and then say some of the other things that have been said here. And this lady's faith was renewed. And she said, now I know that even though in suffering, God still cares and he loves us and that it equips us. She says, in fact, she said, I'm going to go home. She said, there's this course I'm going to sign up for so that I can counsel other people through the challenges that they face similar to our families. And so every, every, every act of evil by the devil can be completely flipped by God to bring something powerful and good from it. Amen? Amen. Aren't you thankful for that today? Amen. And that Jesus ultimately is the answer. So as we close, just very briefly, I believe today we still had, we still, we answered some great questions, but I believe that ultimately the goal is to present Christ to the world not just through our words, not just through what we say, but through the way that we live our lives. And to reveal to the world a God of love, a God whose character is infinitely in pursuit of them. And to do that in such a way that is attractive to others, but at the same time not compromising our faith. Whether you're in a university setting, whether you're in a professional setting, whether you're wherever you are, to present Christ without compromise and with the love that God has given to us. Amen? Amen? And as we do that, as we reach out to people, meeting their needs, ministering to them, they will be drawn to him. Amen? All right, well, let's close with prayer. And then we're going to take a very uh, brief break, about 10 minutes, and we'll be right back here for our divine service. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to not only know you, but to share you with others. And Father... We delight that you have given us the distinct privilege of proclaiming your love and your last day message to the world. And Lord, it is the highest honor that has ever been bestowed upon humanity. It is the greatest work that has ever been given to humanity. And Lord, we pray that you would equip us.
because we are not worthy, we are not able, but you are worthy and you have promised that you would um, do the work through us. So we ask that blessing that, that uh, you would just pour out your spirit upon this weekend as we learn the tools to share Christ wherever we go with, with whoever we meet. That is our prayer this weekend in Jesus' name. Amen.